Section 37 of A Popular History of France, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate McKenzie. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 4, by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 33. Charles IX and the Religious Wars, 1560-1574, Part 3. The results of the Battle of Breux were serious, and still more serious, from the fate of the chiefs than from the number of the dead. The commanders of the two armies, the Constable de Montmorency and the Prince of Conde, were wounded and prisoners. One of the tramvirs, Marshal de Saint-Andre, had been killed in action. The Catholic's wavering ally, Antony de Bourbon, King of Navarre, had died before the battle of a wound which he had received at the siege of Rouen, and, on his deathbed, had resumed his Protestant bearing, saying that, if God granted him grace to get well, he would have nothing but the gospel preached throughout the realm. The two staffs, état-major, as we should now say, were disorganized. In one, the Duke of Guise alone remained unhurt and at liberty. In the other, Coligny, in Conde's absence, was elected general-in-chief of the Protestants. At Paris, for a while, it was believed that the battle was lost. If it had been, says Montluc, I think that it was all over with France, for the state would have changed and so would the religion. A young king can be made to do as you please. Catherine de' Medici showed a facile resignation to such a change. Very well, she had said, then we will pray to God in French. When the victory became known, there was general enthusiasm for the Duke of Guise, but he took only a very modest advantage of it, being more anxious to have his comrades' merits appreciated than his own. At Blois, as he handed the Queen Mother her table napkin at dinner-time, he asked her if he might have an audience of her after the repast. Yezu, my dear cousin,' said Catherine, "'whatever are you saying?' "'I say it, madame, because I would fain show you in the presence of everybody what I have done since my departure from Paris, with your army which you gave in charge to me together with the constable, and also present to you all the good captains and servants of the king and of yourself who have served you faithfully, as well as your own subjects as also foreigners and horsemen and foot.' whereupon he discoursed about the Battle of Breux, and painted it so well and so to the life, says Brantome, that you would have said that they were still about it, whereat the Queen felt very great pleasure. Everyone listened very attentively, without the least noise in the world, and he spoke so well that there was none who was not charmed, for the Prince was the best of speakers and eloquent, not with a forced and overladen eloquence, but simple and soldierly, with a grace of his own to match, so much so that the Queen Mother said that she had never seen him in such good form. The good form, however, was not enough to prevent the ill-humour and jealousy felt by the Queen Mother and her youthful son the King at such a great success which made Guise so great a personage. After the victory of Preux, he had written to the king to express his wish to see conferred upon a candidate of his own choosing the marshal's baton left vacant by the death of Saint-Andre. "'See now,' said Charles the Ninth to his mother and some persons who were by, "'if the Duke of Guise does not act the king well, 
you would really say that the army was his, and that victory came from his hand, making no mention of God, who, by his great goodness, hath given it us. He thrusts the bargain into my fist, dictates to me. Yet must I give him a civil answer to satisfy him? For I do not want to make trouble in my kingdom, and irritate a captain to whom my late father and I have given so much credit and authority. The king almost apologized for having already disposed of the baton in favor of the Marquis de Vieville, and he sent the Duke of Guise the collar of the order for two of his minions, and at the same time the commission of lieutenant-general of the kingdom and commander-in-chief of the army for himself. Guise thanked him, pretending to be satisfied. The king smiled as he read his letter, and, non ti fida e non sarai gabato. Don't trust, and you'll not be duped, he said in the words of the Italian proverb. He had not to disquiet himself for long about this rival. On the 18th of February, 1563, the Duke of Guise was vigorously pushing forward the siege of Orléans, the stronghold of the Protestants, stoutly defended by Coligny. He was apprised that his wife, the Duchess Anne d'Est, had just arrived at a castle near the camp with the intention of using her influence over her husband in order to spare Orléans from the terrible consequences of being taken by assault. He mounted his horse to go and join her, and he was chatting to his aide-de-camp Rostang about the means of bringing about a pacification when, on arriving at a crossroad where several ways met, he felt himself struck in the right shoulder, almost under the arm, by a pistol-shot fired from behind a hedge at a distance of six or seven paces. A white plume upon his head had made him conspicuous, and, as for so short a ride, he had left off his cuirass. Three balls had passed through him from side to side. "'That shot has been in keeping for me a long while,' said he. "'I deserve it for not having taken precautions.' He fell upon his horse's neck as he vainly tried to draw his sword from the scabbard. His arm refused its office. When he had been removed to the castle where the Duchess in tears received him, I am vexed at it, said he, for the honour of France. And to his son Henry, Prince of Jeanville, a boy of thirteen, he added, kissing him, God grant you grace, my son, to become a good man. He languished for six days, amidst useless attentions paid him by his surgeons, giving Catherine de Medici, who came daily to see him, the most pacific counsels, and taking of the Duchess his wife the most tender farewells mingled with the most straightforward and honest avowals. "'I do not mean to deny,' he said to her, "'that the counsels and frailties of youth have led me sometimes into something at which you had a right to be offended. I pray you to be pleased to excuse me and forgive me.' His brother, the Cardinal de Guise, Bishop of Metz, which the Duke had so gloriously defended against Charles V, warned him that it was time to prepare himself for death by receiving the sacraments of the church ah my dear brother said the duke to him i have loved you greatly in times past but i love you now still more than ever for you are doing me a truly brotherly turn on the twenty fourth of february they still offered him ailment to sustain his rapidly increasing weakness but away away said he I have taken the manna from heaven, whereby I feel myself so comforted 
that it seems to me as if I were already in paradise. This body has no further need of nourishment. And so he expired on the 24th of February, 1563, an object, at his death, of the most profound regret amongst his army and his party, as well as his family, after having been during his life the object of their lively admiration. I do not forget, says his contemporary Stephen Pasquier, in reference to him, that it was no small luck for him to die at this period, when he was beyond reach of the breeze, and when shifting fortune had not yet played him any of those turns whereby she is so cunning in lowering the horn of the bravest. It is a duty to faithfully depict this pious and guileless death of a great man at the close of a vigorous and a glorious life, made up of good and evil, without the evils having choked the good. This powerful and consolatory intermixture of qualities is the characteristic of the eminent men of the sixteenth century, Catholics or Protestants, soldiers or civilians, and it is a spectacle wholesome to be offered in times when doubt and moral enfeeblement are the common malady even of sound minds and of honest men. The murderer of Duke Francis of Guise was a petty nobleman of Angoumois, Jean Poltreau, Lord of Mer, a fiery Catholic in his youth, who, afterwards, became an equally fiery Protestant, and was engaged with his relative La Renaudie in the conspiracy against the Guise. He had been employed constantly from that time as a spy, it is said, by the chiefs of the reformers, a vocation for which it would seem he was but little adapted, for the indiscretion of his language must have continually revealed his true sentiments. When he heard, in 1562, of the death of Antony de Bourbon, King of Navarre, that, said he, is not what will put an end to the war. What is wanted is the dog with the big collar. Whom do you mean? asked somebody. The great Guizard, and here's the arm that will do the trick. He used to show, says Dobin, bullets cast to slay the Guizard, and thereby rendered himself ridiculous. After the Battle of Dreux, he was bearer of a message from the Lord of Sobise to Admiral de Coligny, to whom he gave an account of the situation of the reformers in Dauphiny and Lyonnais. His report no doubt interested the Admiral, who gave him twenty crowns to go and play spy in the camp of the Duke of Guise, and, some days later, a hundred crowns to buy a horse. It was thus that Poltro was put in a position to execute the design he had been so fond of proclaiming before he had any communication with Coligny. As soon as, on the 18th of February, 1563, in the outskirts of Orléans, he had, to use his own expression, done his trick, he fled full gallop, so as not to bear the responsibility of it. But, whether it were that he was troubled in his mind, or that he was ill-acquainted with the region, he wandered round and round the place where he had shot the Duke of Guise, and was arrested on the 20th of February by men sent in search of him. Being forthwith brought before the Privy Council, in the presence of the Queen Mother, and put to the torture, he said that Admiral de Coligny, Théodore de Bez, La Rochefoucauld, Soubise, and other Huguenot chiefs had incited him to murder the Duke of Guise, persecutor of the faithful, as a meritorious deed in the eyes of God and men. Coligny repudiated this allegation point-blank. Shrinking from the very appearance of hypocrisy, 
he abstained from any regret at the death of the Duke of Guise. "'The greatest blessing,' said he, "'which could come to this realm and to the Church of God, "'especially to myself and all my house,' and he referred to conversations he had held with the Cardinal of Lorraine and the Duchess of Guise, and to a notice which he had sent a few days previously to the Duke of Guise himself, to take care, for there was somebody under a bond to kill him. Lastly, he demanded that, to set in a clear light, his integrity, innocence, and good repute, Poltrot should be kept, until peace was made, in strict confinement, so that the admiral himself and the murderer might be confronted. It was not thought to be obligatory or possible to comply with this desire. Amongst the public there was a passionate outcry for prompt chastisement. Poltro, removed to Paris, put to the torture and questioned by the commissioners of Parliament, at one time confirmed and at another disavowed his original assertions. Coligny, he said, had not suggested the project to him, but had cognizance of it, and had not attempted to deter him. The decree sentenced Poltro to the punishment of regicides. He underwent it on the 18th of March, 1563, in the Place de Greve, preserving to the very end that fierce energy of hatred and vengeance which had prompted his deed. He was heard saying to himself in the midst of his torments, as if to comfort himself, for all that he is dead and gone, the persecutor of the faithful, and he will not come back again. The angry populace insulted him with yells. Poltreau added, If the persecution does not cease, vengeance will fall upon this city, and the avengers are already at hand. Catherine de' Medici, well pleased perhaps that there was now a question, personally embarrassing for the admiral, and as yet in abeyance, had her mind entirely occupied apparently with the additional weakness and difficulty resulting to the position of the crown and the catholic party from the death of the duke of guise she considered peace necessary and for reasons of a different nature chancellor de l'hôpital was of the same opinion he drew attention to scruples of conscience the perils of foreign influence and the impossibility of curing by an application of brute force a malady concealed in the very bowels and brains of the people negotiations were entered into with the two captive generals the prince of conde and the constable de montbrancy they assented to that policy and on the nineteenth of march peace was concluded at amboise in the form of an edict which granted to the protestants the concessions recognized as indispensable by the crown itself and regulated the relations of the two creeds pending the remedy of time the decisions of a holy council and the king's majority liberty of conscience and the practice of the religion called reformed were recognized for all barons and lords high justiciary in their houses with their families and dependents for nobles having fiefs without vassals and living on the king's lands but for them and their families personally the burgesses were treated less favourably the reformed worship was maintained in the towns in which it had been practised up to the seventh of march in the current year but beyond that and noblemen's mansions this worship might not be celebrated save in the faubourgs of one single town in every bailiwick or seneschalty paris and its district were to remain exempt from any exercise of the said reformed religion during the negotiations and as to the very basis of the edict of march nineteenth fifteen sixty three 
the Protestants were greatly divided. The soldiers and the politicians, with Conde at their head, desired peace, and thought that the concessions made by the Catholics ought to be accepted. The majority of the reformed pastors and theologians cried out against the insufficiency of the concessions, and were astonished that there should be so much hurry to make peace when the Catholics had just lost their most formidable captain. Coligny, moderate in his principles, but always faithful to his church when she made her voice heard, showed dissatisfaction at the selfishness of the nobles. To confine the religion to one town in every bailiwick, he said, is to ruin more churches by a stroke of the pen than our enemies could have pulled down in ten years. The nobles ought to have recollected that example had been set by the towns to them, and by the poor to the rich. Calvin, in his correspondence with the reformed churches of France, severely handled Conde on this occasion. At the moment when peace was made, the Pacific were in the right. The death of the Duke of Guise had not prevented the Battle of Dreux from being a defeat for the reformers, and, when war had to be supported for long, it was especially the provincial nobles and the people on their estates who bore the burden of it. But, when the Edict of Amboise had put an end to the first religious war, when the question was no longer as to who won or lost battles, but whether the conditions of that peace to which the Catholics had sworn were loyally observed, and whether their concessions were effective in ensuring the modest amount of liberty and security promised to the Protestants, the question changed front, and it was not long before facts put the malcontents in the right. Between 1563 and 1567, murders of distinguished Protestants increased strangely, and excited amongst their families anxiety accompanied by a thirst for vengeance. The Guise and their party on their side persisted in their outcries for proceedings against the instigators, known or presumed, of the murder of Duke Francis. It was plainly against Admiral de Coligny that these cries were directed, and he met them by a second declaration, very frank as a denial of the deed which it was intended to impute to him, but more hostile than ever to the Guise and their party. The late Duke, said he, was of the whole army the man I had most looked out for on the day of the last battle. If I could have brought a gun to bear upon him to kill him, I would have done it. I would have ordered ten thousand arquebusiers, had so many been under my command, to single him out amongst all the others, whether in the field or from over a wall or from behind a hedge. In short, I would not have spared any of the means permitted by the laws of war in time of hostility to get rid of so great an enemy as he was for me and for so many other good subjects of the king. After three years of such deadly animosity between the two parties in the two houses, the king and the queen mother could find no other way of stopping an explosion than to call the matter on before the privy council and cause to be there drawn up on the 29th of January 1566, a solemn decree declaring the admiral's innocence on his own affirmation, given in the presence of the king and the council as before God himself, that he had not had anything to do with or approved of the said homicide. Silence for all time to come was consequently imposed upon the attorney general and everybody else. 
inhibition and prohibition were issued against the continuance of any investigation or prosecution. The king took the parties under his safeguard and enjoined upon them that they should live amicably in obedience to him. By virtue of this injunction, the Guise, the Colignies, and the Montmorencies ended by embracing, the first named accommodating themselves with a pretty good grace to this demonstration. But God knows what embraces. Words used in La Harenga, a satire of the day in burlesque verse, upon the Cardinal of Lorraine. Six years later, the St. Bartholomew brought the true sentiments out into broad daylight. At the same time that the war was proceeding amongst the provinces with this passionate dogginess, royal decrees were alternately confirming and suppressing or weakening the securities for liberty and safety which the decree of Amboise on the 19th of March 1563 had given to the Protestants by way of re-establishing peace. It was a series of contradictory measures which were sufficient to show the party strife still raging in the heart of the government. On the 14th of June, 1563, Protestants were forbidden to work with shops open on the days of Catholic festivals. On the 14th of December, 1563, it was proclaimed that Protestants might not gather arms for the poor of their religion, unless in places where that religion was practised, and nowhere else. On the 24th of June, 1564, a proclamation from the king interdicted the exercise of the reformed religion within the precincts of any royal residence. On the 4th of August, 1564, the reformed churches were forbidden to hold synods and make collections of money, and their ministers to quit their places of residence and to open schools. On the 12th of November, 1567, a king's ordinance interdicted the conferring of judiciary offices on non-Catholics. In vain did Condon Coligny cry out loudly against these violations of the peace of Amboise, in vain, on the 16th of August, 1563, at the moment of proclaiming the king's majority, was an edict issued giving full and entire confirmation to the edict of the 19th of March preceding, with the addition of prescriptions favourable to the royal authority, as well as, at the same time, to the maintenance of the public peace. Scarcely any portion of these prescriptions was observed. The credit of Chancelot de l'Hôpital was clearly very much on the decline, and, Whilst the legal government was thus falling to pieces or languishing away, Gaspard de Tavan, a proved soldier and royalist, who, however, was not yet Marshal of France, was beginning to organise, under the name of Brotherhood of the Holy Spirit, a secret society intended to renew the civil war, if it happened that occasion should offer for repressing and chastising them of the religion called Reformed. It was the League in its cradle. At the same time, the king had orders given for a speedy levy of 6,000 Swiss, and an army corps was being formed on the frontiers of Champagne. The queen mother neglected no pains, no caresses, to hide from Conde the true moving cause at the bottom of all these measures. And as he was, says the historian de Villa, by nature very ready to receive all sorts of impressions, he easily suffered himself to be lulled to sleep. One day, however, in June 1567, he thought it about time to claim the fulfilment of a promise that had been made him at the time of the Peace of Amboise of a post which would give him the rank and authority of Lieutenant-General of the Kingdom, as his late brother, the King of Navarre, had been. And he asked for the sword of constable which Montmorency, 
in consequence of his great age, seemed disposed to resign to the king. Catherine avoided giving any answer, but her favourite son, Henry, Duke of Anjou, who was as yet only sixteen, repudiated this idea with so much haughtiness that Conde felt called upon to ask some explanations. There was no longer any question of war with Spain or of an army to be got together. "'What, pray, will you do?' he asked. "'With the Swiss you are raising?' The answer was, "'We shall find good employment for them.'" End of section 37